Poppin' the Christian Bubble. It is now time for the Cultured Christian Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode is sponsored by, well, no one, because we're still small. But someday, hopefully, by companies like Apple and Amazon. We get our first look at the new Dune movie, the SGN Good News Network, coronavirus tracking built into our phones, a woman with a bionic eye, a new PS5 controller, and what's this idea about community? Do we really need it? All this and more coming up in today's episode. Episode 8, episode 8, I'm feeling so great. Why? Because it's episode 8. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to this, another edition of the Cultured Christian Podcast, where we talk about culture, tech, and faith. Is there any better topics? I would argue, I venture to say, there is no better topics than those three. And if you like them, then you're in the right place, because that's what we're talking about today and always. So, let's begin with some culture... Uh, As I said there in the intro, Dune is coming out in 2020. Yes, this year. I thought it was next year, but it's coming out this fall in December, unless it gets pushed back. It is going to rock. I can already tell this week they dropped some images from the film. The first look we kind of got, they're dropping little teaser, little pictures from the set. Timothy Chalamet, I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, You may know him from the Netflix movie, The King. That's like kind of one of his lesser known things. If you haven't seen The King on Netflix, check that out. Uh, His acting in that and then the film Beautiful Boy is incredible. Really shows just what an incredible actor he is with so much depth. He just plays uh, both roles amazing, wonderful job. And he's not only a great actor, but he's also one of my niece's crushes. She has quite the crush on him. So yeah, he's going to rock. I'm sure of that in Dune. And I love science fiction. I, I may have shared it on here. If I haven't, here we go. I am a huge science fiction buff. I think it is surpassed. When I was a teenager, I was into comedy, kind of action films. I think now science fiction is easily my favorite genre of movies. And part of that is because I think science fiction, I finally caught on to this later in life, they're able to explore some really deep themes within science fiction. Some of the best films, some of the best books are science fiction because they go into a spiritual element. They deal with the creator and the creation, you know, robots and humans creating robots. I just rewatched uh, Prometheus, the new Ridley Scott, um, supposed to be a trilogy of movies. So you have Prometheus, then you have Alien Covenant, and then there's this third movie, which hopefully is coming at some point. I haven't seen a lot of data on that, but I just rewatched those two movies, and again, just so much in there. I mean, you obviously have the aliens and the normal you know, space stuff, if you're into the technology of the ship and how they're getting to these other planets, yeah, that's all there. But there's also a really interesting theme of spirituality, of God, of who creates who, and how this robot becomes basically, mm, I'm spoiling it here if you don't remember the two movies, but the robot is basically like 
wanting to be God and is basically just wreaking havoc and all because he wants to be in control of creating life. And so that those two films are great. I loved Ex Machinima. Again, also creator creation kind of thing. I just love science fiction. It's so fun. If you like this theme of technology and culture, you probably are a fan of science fiction. I'm not a much of a fan of fantasy. See, that's what I thought, like Lord of the Rings, uh, Harry Potter, you know, that kind of like goblins and warlocks and wizards and stuff i again always thought of that as science fiction but that's more kind of split off into a new category as of late maybe it's always been that way i don't know but i always kind of group those two together and i'm not huge i like lord of the rings but not a harry harry potter fan so anyways, kind of off on a tangent there, but I'm super excited about Dune coming out later this year. The original one came out way back in 1984. I was only four years old, so I did not watch that one when it came out in theaters, but definitely watch it later on, and I'm just excited to see where they take it this time around. All right, so a lot of things in this quarantine pandemic life just stinks. And one of the things that stinks really bad, terrible, like you need to turn it off, is the news. Like, can we just agree, whatever side of anything you're on, the news is terrible and it just seems to be more bad news on top of bad news. And again, friends, let's remember they're paid to make us feel afraid, ultimately. And so I was flipping through YouTube one night and I found John Krasinski. I have a lot of funny uh, big names on today's podcast to pronounce. John Krasinski, uh, you know him. He's most well known for his role on The Office. But lately he's been in, you know, the new Jack Ryan on Prime, uh, the Quiet Place movies. Great actor. He's again kind of come into his own. He's broken out of the shell of just being that guy on The Office. Great job there as well. But now he's kind of beyond that. And he started something called Some Good News, SGN News. Basically, he's quarantined in his house with his beautiful wife, Emily Blunt. And they started this thing called Some Good News. And they're literally just sharing good news, mostly from Twitter and different, you know, personal stories from around the web, people sharing, mostly connected to medical workers and just people who are going out there and doing random acts of kindness. And so I was kind of late to the game. Honestly, I didn't see it the first few times. But as of this taping, this recording, over 16 million people have watched his first episode. So here's a clip from SGN. Good evening, everybody, even though it is very clearly the afternoon, and welcome to SGN. John, what is SGN? That's a good question. For years now, I've been wondering, why is there not a news show dedicated entirely to good news? Well, desperately seeking my fix somewhere else, I reached out to all of you this week, asking, nay, begging for some good news. And boy, did you deliver. After reading those replies and the incredibly heartwarming stories that came with them, I thought, all right, enough is enough, world. Why not us? Why not now? So, ladies and gentlemen, this is your fault, and this is SGN. I'm John Krasinski, and if it isn't clear yet, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. And now, for some good news.
If you haven't checked out SGN News, just go to your YouTube, punch that in, check it out. There's a few episodes there. It is definitely worth your time, and it will bring a smile, if not a tear, to your eye. And we all need that in this season. We all need to bring positivity to push aside negativity, push aside the news, and be filling ourselves up with good news and be making good news, not just consuming good news, but also being the kind of people that would show up on his show. So if you haven't checked that out, check that out. Now, one thing that's happening in this season is I have, like many of you, run out of things to watch. I've been watching Netflix, Prime, kind of jumping back and forth, and I clicked over on this Netflix show that I thought, again, because I like science fiction and at least was tagged as science fiction, this movie called The Platform. Now, if you haven't seen it, I'm going to say don't watch it. It's not good. I gave it a fair go a Friday I think last week or the week before, but basically the idea is that there are like a hundred or so levels in this future world and you basically are put in there and they don't really explain why, but different people, two people on each level and you're put in there and this thing lifts or goes from the the top to the bottom, and it's basically a table, and it starts at the top, level one, and goes all the way down through these different levels, giving you, like, I don't know, they didn't ever, I don't think they ever said how many minutes, like, let's say three minutes at each level, and you can eat as much as you can, but you cannot take any food, so you can't hoard any or save any food, whatever you leave behind goes down. And so it starts from the top and it goes down, 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 all the way down to these lower levels where, of course, you can imagine there's nothing left at the bottom. And so it gets really weird and gory uh, because let me just spoiler alert, they start eating each other at the lower levels. Yes, cannibalism is happening in this uh, show and it's pretty dang graphic and gross. But it's trying to make a larger statement, obviously, and that's the thing I don't like about films like this, is it's so not subtle. It's just, to me, art, you need subtlety. I, I don't know the word. Part of the the beauty of writing and the beauty of making a film is... Like Parasite, I think, is a great example. Why I really like Parasite. Excellent writing. There's a lot of deep themes and a lot of things being drawn out there. But it's subtle. It's done in great writing. It's couched in a great story. And I think the platform is just basically like, here's what we're saying. And it just throws it in your face about classes and rich people versus poor people and starving people versus overly fed people and... Just, I don't know, take it for what it is. I can't recommend the platform. I thought it was silly. I'm running out of things to watch. I need your help, basically, is what I'm saying here. And what do you guys think about all these shows, like the late night shows, like the Tonight Show, Jimmy Kimmel, Ellen, I think, is doing it, um, doing like live versions alone at their homes? What do you guys think about that? I, I've tuned into a few of them. Saturday Night Live just did one. And, you know, some of them are kind of learning as they go. Some of them have uh, clap tracks. What do you call it? Laugh tracks, you know? So it's like you're giving a joke and then there's no one there to laugh. It kind of falls flat. And so I would say overall, the few that I have watched, I don't watch a ton of live TV anymore. I don't know if you do. But the ones that I've tuned into did just, well, kind of fall flat for me. I just felt like, you know, part of the 
thing of TV is the sound effects and the audience and just the interplay of the audience with the person on the stage. And so I don't know. Again, I'm looking for your feedback here. What do you guys think? Are you enjoying this new season, if you will, of actors and uh, talk show hosts working from their homes, their home office or their basements or wherever? What do you guys think about that? How's that impacting you guys in this season? As we move into tech this week, we have got some great stories from you from a wide range of topics. And we're going to start with a controversial one. I'm not sure if you heard this week, but Apple and Google announced that they are working together, which when you think about it, is pretty unprecedented, right? They're competing companies. They often don't work together on anything. And they're working together on a coronavirus tracking tool. This comes from two articles over on Verge, and as always, I will link them in the show notes. I try to do that with all the articles we're talking about. And side note, theverge.com, if you haven't checked it out, it is a great source for technology news. But moving into that, they have two articles there, and it's talking about this Apple and Google's coronavirus tracking tool. And it's somewhat controversial, and we'll get into that too in a minute, but they start by saying it's still there's a lot of unknowns here. So some of it's speculation, some's the little bit that has been announced. And the first phase is going to be app based and that starts next month, probably by the end of May. There's going to be apps available in Google and Apple's app stores that you can download. And basically that's going to move quickly into a second phase probably this summer building into the API building into the operating system that will add contract contact tracing as a core iOS and Android feature and it's again a little bit complex but from my understanding it's going to use our phones most of these higher end phones have low energy Bluetooth and best I can understand is it's going to know based on your Bluetooth being on, you have to enable that through the app or through this new integration coming this summer. But the app's basically going to know if you came in contact with someone within 6 to 12 feet of someone who had coronavirus or who has coronavirus. So the idea would be that you would get a notification hey, you might want to see a doctor or how's your symptoms or you should self-quarantine for 14 days because you did, in fact, according to your phone, according to your location data, you came close to someone who has coronavirus. There's also, if you yourself are diagnosed with coronavirus, it follows that those people using the app would then have to self-identify some way. I don't know if they're going to do this anonymously, but you would have to identify through the app, through the integrated software that you have coronavirus. Then it sends out the data to people who are in your proximity. So where this is very helpful, right, is if you have a family or a church or, you know, people that you're a community that you're typically around, we do this automatically, right? If grandma gets sick, oh, well, I may have been sick because I was in grandma's presence or I work with a guy who has the flu. Oh, my gosh, I may now get the flu, right? So we do this kind of on a micro level. But what this app is trying to do is make it a macro level thing where the guy at the gas station that we went to yesterday 
or the liquor store or the grocery store or whatever, we'll get an alert on our phone and then we can take precautions. And thus, if we all do that, if we all opt in and follow this, then it will slow and stop the spread, right? Because we will then have the blinders ripped off. We will know if we actually did come into contact with somebody with this virus or perhaps any future virus. Now, if you're like me, I have a mixed opinion about this sort of thing, right? Like, obviously, I want to help. I want to be a contributor to this data, and I want to give as much help as I can to lighten the load for our healthcare community to help save lives, right? Like, that's on the one side of the coin. Obviously, I think most of us would agree we want to be those kind of people that help contribute to this sort of thing and stop it from happening. No one wants to get into a quarantine situation, self-isolation so if we can do anything to prevent that, I think we'd all be on board with that. The other side of that coin, the challenge, you're probably already going there mentally, is to me this is a slippery slope. And there's already been a conversation with one of the doctors, Dr. Fauci, I think is how you say his name. He made some comment about this app. And the idea is that it's useless unless everyone's forced to opt in. So... It seems to follow if you are told, hey, you can download this app or in the summer your Apple phone, your Android phone is going to have a pop up and say, hey, you should opt into this program. But it's voluntary. A lot of people aren't going to do that. And so it's not helpful unless everybody's on board. Right. If only 10 percent of the population is using this app it's not going to really do much good because you then are coming in contact with people just like you are right now and it's not notifying you. So I see that truth. I see that reality that without everybody opting in, it's really not that helpful of a system. But the slippery slope, as with a lot of these privacy things, is, yeah, if we're trusting the people who run these apps and these governments that are behind it, cool beans, right? Like we're all for that. But what if this information is used in a bad way, right? What if I don't have um, a disease or there really isn't a disease? I'm not saying COVID doesn't exist, but follow the logic here. Um, what if there's something in the future where they create something and it's like, oh yeah, you need to self-quarantine. You need to stay at home and there really isn't any reason to. It would be an incredibly powerful tool to isolate people groups. And, and ultimately, even though they say parts of it will be anonymous, they'll be able to, just like with your internet provider and you know your cell phone provider, all these companies know the websites we're going to, where we're driving, because our cars are off, often connected. And if our cars aren't connected, guess what? Our phones are, and our phones know where we're driving. They know when we're in a vehicle going 20 miles an hour or more. And so with all that data, it's really scary if it falls into the wrong hands or if it's hacked. I mean, my goodness, are government agencies ever hacked? And that information is sold to China, to Russia, to South Korea, Iran, I think there's a lot of reason to pause here and see if we really want to get into that kind of, I would argue, dystopian future where our phones are tracking and getting into that level of our health. And, you know, again, if you go to the extreme, the worst case scenario of not only is the government aware of it, 
now they can show up at our front door, the police, the military, and tell us to self-quarantine, tell us to stay in our rooms. That, for many of you, right, this is kind of the argument that's being had right now, the debate that's being had, is the balance of freedom versus helping people save save lives, helping to not overwhelm the healthcare industry. And I don't really want to get into that debate uh, on here, but if you're like me, again, I want to circle all the way back around to the beginning statement, which is I have mixed opinion here because obviously I want to help society. I do see the value of a program like this. I love technology. You love technology. We understand that. But there has to be strong boundaries and deep questions asked about privacy because in the wrong hands, I could see this really being used against people in an authoritarian sort of uh, manner. And living in the United States, I don't want to even go down that road for one second. And I hope you don't either. Do you ever read an article and you just have to click on it because it's either clickbait or it's real? And if it's real, you just have to read it. Well, so is this article that I found over on Neoscope. Scientists, this is the title of the article, scientists plugged in a bionic eye directly into a woman's brain. That is science fiction right there. Oh my gosh. She had been blind for 16 years, but using a bionic eye, she was able to see things. Now, again, it was still very low res. She could see glowing dots and identify letters and lights and people, but it's not, you know, to the point where it's this high res seeing like normal, but still they're putting basically glasses on her that connect to this cord that plugs into her eye socket and that's how she sees like this stuff is just so next level and i feel like over the next 10 years we're gonna see biotech go into this unbelievable realm where people who are blind are going to be able to see people who are deaf are going to be able to hear people with uh limbs missing are going to have even better maybe surpass normal movement these sort of things are just so interesting and i think the best type of technology any technology that takes a human deficiency and brings them back to normal or improves that beyond normal to like a superhuman like that's getting into like uh, marvel comics but either way, this is a reality right here in this article back in February. This woman right now on the planet has had a bionic eye. Now, they've only allowed it to be in temporarily. So from what the article said, it's six months at a time and then they have to take it out. I guess, again, they're trying to study and learn and develop. But man, that kind of stuff is so, so cool. Little bit more gamer news this week. The new PS5 controller was revealed. Now, those of you into gaming, specifically into PlayStation, were excited to see this new PS5 controller. And it is one of the biggest shifts for the PlayStation. One of the things that has been consistent throughout many years of PlayStations, all the way back to PlayStation 1, is the basic form of the controller has stayed the same. The way it fits in your hand, 
the most basic buttons that you use have been consistent. And for those of us gamers, that's actually really important because you need to know without looking down like, oh, what button am I pushing? You know where your finger's at on the controller. You know what that, you know, that function does, basically. There's common button presses that you use in most games. I will suspend my opinion on this until I hold it because, again, it's such a big change. My first sense when I uh, looked at this new controller picture is it looks incredibly like the Xbox controller, which I didn't like. I thought Xbox controllers were too fat. They're just these huge um, devices in your hand. And I think part of the value, part of the thing with the PS4 controller and all of the PS uh, controllers are they were very thin and narrow, like they just fit around your hand. And so I'm going to suspend judgment until I have it in my hands. I'm excited about it. I think they did do some cool um, additions to it and the look of it. They did this kind of cool two-tone look. That is pretty cool. There's adaptive triggers um, coming to this new controller, built-in microphones. So you're going to have a controller-based microphone for those for some reason don't want to buy a headset. I think that's kind of odd if you're a gamer. There's a create button. They kind of changed the share button that was on there. I think people weren't using that as much. And so they're expanding the use to call it a create button. And so that's going to be um, some new aspects of it. There's some other things. I think haptic feedback is a big part of it. You'll be able to feel more in a game. Like if you're on a rough road versus climbing up a ladder uh, versus getting shot at, there's going to be a more uh, detailed feeling in the controller as to what's happening. So I'm excited to see how well that works. But yeah, just some cool news for PS5, which is coming out again this fall. There's so many cool tech things coming out this fall, and PS5 is definitely on my list. And so, yeah, check out that controller. I'll have that link in the uh, show notes as always. But there is a ton of pictures out there. I don't think there's any video yet, but check out the new PS5. They're calling it Dual Sense. Instead of dual shock, they're going to a new term, dual sense. Crazy. Check it out. In our faith section this week, I want to talk about the opposite of social distancing. I read an article over on medium.com titled, Coronavirus is a preview of our self-isolating future. How working from home could reshape society. The author of the article kind of takes the approach that he's been working remotely for a while now. Long before COVID, he decided to relocate into a remote area, suburban area, far from the New York City lifestyle that he had been living in. For him, as he kind of goes forward in this article, he's talking about that question that I think is on a lot of our minds. As we start to think of coronavirus in the rearview mirror, we start to ponder what life will be like after coronavirus. There's a lot of conversation about, will things just immediately go back to normal? What sort of things have businesses and churches and communities and families and individuals, what have we learned in this forced self-isolation period? 
are there things that we're going to now make different about our world? He says a quote directly from the article. He says, it feels in some ways like a dress rehearsal for a future that was already on its way, one in which more and more of us will self-isolate voluntarily, interacting with the outside world only from behind the scenes. What do you guys think about a future where we live and work from home? where we don't go to work nine to five, we don't head to an office, we don't go to a specific job, but we work primarily from home. Our lives are centered around a home. I was thinking about my friends, and it's kind of interesting being a single guy living alone during this quarantine. I've noticed how my experience over the last three weeks has been, well, rather different than many of my friends. And this is kind of anecdotal, but from the group of friends and family that I have interacted with, I would say about two-thirds of the married people, married with kids people, are reporting that they love this. I've even had a few friends emphatically say, like, when this is over, I hope I can find a job where I can work remotely. Like, I love being at home for lunch with my kids. I love being there to go out for walks or play catch or go fishing or whatever that they're able to do with their spouses and with their kids. I also find a third of my married friends are, well, struggling. They're struggling to have that much time with their spouses. And it's not like they fought like crazy before this pandemic, but it's kind of the idea that, you know, to have for them to have a healthy marriage, there needs to be some time separate from the spouse. And that's what work was. It was a segment of the day where they weren't in each other's proximity. And and that's why you see, you've heard, maybe I've heard that domestic violence cases are up 25, 30%. I hear a lot of sirens actually in my neighborhood, and I wonder how many of them are being called to homes because of domestic abuse, because of fighting and arguing and bickering inside of families. And so that's kind of my married friends. But then you have single people, and I just have chatted with a few of my single friends, and it's really been a challenging season. I think to live alone and you know, be in a quote-unquote prison is kind of the term I've heard from single friends. It's like, we're imprisoned. Like, we don't have any uh, people to socialize with. And so the thought of this continuing or going on is a real challenging uh, mental mental thing. And so where I want to go today with this, again, we're in our faith section, is that I want to start with this idea that community was a God idea. There is definitely science behind this. There's definitely psychology and articles and things I could point to, but I want to point to the spiritual. I want to go to God and what I believe was built into our DNA, built into each one of us. And that was this idea of community being a God idea. I mean, you see it all throughout the Bible, and I just kind of want to jump throughout Genesis to Revelation, just three areas, and highlight for you this value of community. And what I mean by community, my definition is close proximity, face-to-face, interacting with other human beings, not necessarily spouses or kids, but those are definitely included in that, but other people, human beings being around other human beings. And we see this at the start. 
right at the start in Scripture. We see in Genesis chapter 2, of course, those of you who need a refresher or aren't familiar, God created the world seven days, right? This whole thing started with God, him speaking the world into existence, and he creates Adam in his image, the Imago Dei. He creates mankind. He creates first a male, a, a human male in Adam. And we see this moment in time where Adam is alone with God. And at first glance, you think, well, isn't that enough? Isn't that, isn't that cool? Like, Adam's with God. God's perfect. God's his creator. Like, I think that'd be pretty cool, stinking cool, to have that kind of close relationship with the creator of the universe. And then he says these words in Genesis 2.18. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. And from there, if you remember the story, God goes on to create animals. Before Eve even enters the picture, there's a moment where God creates animals. And Adam takes a part with God. He's partnering with God in naming the animals. He's working. There's some element of work here. He's working with God to name the animals. And it's still not enough. There's still an element of we haven't found the perfect helper, depending on the version of the Bible you use, the term helpmate or helper is there suitable to meet his needs relationally. And so then God creates Eve. He creates Eve. And I think it's powerful and very poetic that what does he use to create Eve? You know, Adam, he creates Adam from the dust of the earth. It's a combination of the earth and God's breath, and that's what he creates Adam with. But there's something powerful and beautiful. When he goes to create Eve, he takes a piece. Adam falls asleep, or he puts Adam to sleep, I think is more appropriate to say, and he takes one of his ribs, and from his DNA, from Adam, he creates Eve. And this is expressed in the end of Genesis chapter 2, where it says, the man said, so Adam is saying this, he says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. So there's man, and then you add W-O, and you get wo-man. Like, that is powerful in and of itself in the imagery that Eve came from Adam who came from God, this kind of progression and this kind of famil familial sort of thing. So we see right from the start in Genesis that community is a God idea. He started this whole thing of Adam and Eve and the animals. Now, if we jump ahead all the way to Hebrews in our Bible, we see, again, we've passed over a lot of other places where I could have pointed to this. There, it, This isn't by far an exhaustive look into relationships in scripture, but I just want to jump to the uh, passage in Hebrews, which is talking about the church, okay? The church is established at this point. We're talking about the ecclesia, the gathering of Christians. And he says in Hebrews uh, 10 verse 23, it says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Verse 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another 
all the more as you see the day approaching. So there it is again, this idea that there needs to be a gathering of people, people together. It's impossible to spur one another on towards love and good deeds unless you're communicating, unless you're with those people. And that's where he says, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Now, what that means, the Hebrew writer here is acknowledging that some are in the habit of not meeting together. Now, some of you listening to this podcast, again, assuming the vision here uh, of our podcast is reaching that audience, some of you don't like going to church. Some of you may go, you may be dragged by a spouse or you go out of guilt, but if you're really honest, which I think you should be all times, be honest with yourself and hopefully your spouse, if you have one, you just don't like going to church. Church isn't really adding much to your life, and a lot of it comes to this aspect, I would say, of relationships. Most of the people I know who don't attend church had a bad experience at church. They had a relationship issue. It's it's usually not just music or, you know, they didn't like this or they didn't like that. Most people leave churches because of a relational problem, right? With the pastor, with a deacon, with uh, Joe Schmo, Joe, you know, John Doe in the church, who's just a real prick, uh, or, you know, just somebody that they had a relational issue with. And so they decide that they don't want to go to church anymore. And maybe that happens two or three times and people give up meeting together as Hebrews says. But Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, has the value of community, and he says, let's not do that. Let's not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing. So we see that value. And again, remember this church in Hebrews was home churches. It was people meeting in homes. And it wasn't just families. So again, this idea that we have virtual church going on right now, it's cool. It's cool for a season to have uh, virtual church. But if you were to ask me, can we really do church online? I would say my answer is not completely. I, I don't think we can completely do the things that I read in scripture. Uh, my understanding of scripture, there are different elements that can happen only face to face. And you'll have to check out Acts chapter two on your own. The first church, the beginning of the church, you see the aspects, the elements, the things that they were doing require being in proximity, being uh, face-to-face. It it involves love, and I think being loved, part of being loved is being known by someone, but also being in physical presence. I'm going to argue that to be loved is to be known and to be in the physical presence of other people. And this is why I argue that we we all feel the itch in this season, this self-isolation that we're in, this shelter in place. We all feel the itch to want to see our friends and family members in person versus doing FaceTime or house party or Zoom. Like those things are good, but they're not the best. Like on the good, better, best scale, the best is seeing and being with people in person. We can't do this stuff remotely forever. You can't do relationships and church and community uh, remotely. There's just some element that I feel has to have physical presence, has to have being, being known. And that's what they're getting at, I think, in Hebrews chapter 10. 
And finally, I mentioned there were three areas in Scripture. I want to go all the way to the end of the book, the book of Revelation, amazing book. I encourage you to check it out. A lot of people are scared to read the book of Revelation. They just think, oh, it's going to be dragons and symbols and hard to understand. But I want to jump to a passage uh, in the second to last chapter of the Bible and of the book Revelation. Reading from Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 3, it says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Now, to me, that is a beautiful picture. And the reason why is because at the end of time, at the end of Scripture, we see this value of relationship, of community, the opposite of social distancing. God wants to be close to us. God wants to dwell with us. And we see in the final stages that we will be reunited with God in a physical sense. And that, to me, again, if you have studied scripture, we understand Emmanuel, God is with us, the Holy Spirit, all those things. There is a sense in which God is with us everywhere all the time, but there's also a sense in which he's not. And that's one of those kind of brain buster things. It's like we get God in part, I think, right now, but we get him in full in the future. And that's what we see with this idea of heaven being a place where God will dwell once again directly with us. And that's his longing. His longing from Genesis to Revelation is restored relationship to know us and to be in close proximity to us. That's what his desire is. That's what the driving point of scripture is. In this article, the coronavirus is a preview of our self-isolating future. I think that could be a reality. I do think that that is a possible future, a possible way that our society goes after coronavirus, that 10 years from now, we are far more isolated. We are far more separated from each other than we are right now. I click down into the uh, comment section of the article. Sometimes the comment section is actually the funnest part of, of an article, but there's a woman on there who kind of challenges one of his points in the article and, and really highlights this idea that, you know, he was saying that when we're not commuting, one of the potential downsides of remote work is that when we're commuting, we're in relationship, we're interacting with other people, and we will miss out on that if we're remotely working. And this woman in, in the comment section, she pushes back to that and she says, no, you're actually wrong. We're already isolated as a society. Most people, if you're sitting on a subway train, a bus, uh, any sort of public transit, walking even, People are looking at their phones. People are listening to podcasts like you may be right now. Um, we're, we're separate from each other. Even though we're sitting in close proximity, we're not relating to our neighbors, uh, coworkers, people around the block. We're not typically doing community anymore. And so I think we're already in a season of isolation before COVID. I wonder if one of the possible... I, uh, one of the possible futures, if you will, is that this will continue. We'll see less and less need for interacting with 
each other, at least when it comes to things like working. I know a lot of churches are going to be thinking about virtual online groups, all that sort of stuff. And I think you got to be careful because it's not an either or. I think it's a both and. I think it's cool to have things like even this podcast where we can listen and we can be interacting with each other through technology but I think it can't replace, it should never replace, God wouldn't want it to replace those face-to-face, in proximity, messy often, hard often, human-to-human interaction. Because after all, I think again, community was a God idea, and that will only be fulfilled. Our ultimate fulfillment is going to be through relationships. I end with a quote that I love from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, Only in fellowship do we learn to be rightly alone, and only in aloneness do we learn to be rightly in fellowship. Such a solid quote. Highlights everything that we've been talking about. We need each other. And man, if that wasn't a God idea, I don't know what is. Well, as they say, all good things must come to an end, including this episode. But before we do, I just want to let you know that we started a brand new Instagram for this podcast. If I haven't followed you already, please look for us over at Cultured Christians on the Instagram. It is getting filled up with people. So many people are liking it. The word is getting out there. I'm thankful to those of you who are sharing about it in your Insta stories. Um, Just keep helping us get the word out, man. When we're in the build phase of this thing, it's so important for word of mouth, for people just to say, hey, I love this podcast. You should check it out. And if you love it, please do that. I would appreciate that. Shameless plug, just pass it around. If you don't love this podcast, if you have feedback, I say it every week, please send me an email at culturedchristians at gmail.com or just text us at the number in our uh, show notes, and I would happily hear that feedback because we want this podcast to be helpful, useful, inspirational uh, to you, the listener. This isn't just about me and what I want to put out into the world. I want it to land and be... uh, hitting an audience, reaching a group of people. And so if it's not, I need to hear that. I need to hear how I can make this better. It's the only way we improve in life is if we hear that kind of constructive feedback. So please pass it along. I would greatly appreciate it. But if you love what you're hearing, if you think this is adding value, then help us get the word out. And we'd appreciate that as well on our Facebook page and as well on Reddit. I look forward to seeing you in the next one.